James chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Is anyone of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should, should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rachel. Let's pray together. 
Dear Lord, thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, much of it is difficult to understand, but we trust that you are wanting to speak to us, that you have not left us alone trying to piece things together, but that you speak to us through your word, by your spirit. I pray that we would understand today what you would say to each one of us, and that having heard your voice, we would be changed. Amen. Well, this is the last of five sermons looking through the book of James. You might recall that two weeks ago, we had the rather sobering warning that not many should presume to be teachers. And I think this passage makes it obvious why. This passage is fraught with exegetical danger. It's a passage that has been cited in numerous ecclesiastical debates and controversies. For example, in relation uh, to issues as diverse as private land ownership or oath-taking, faith healing, of course, and the Roman Catholic practices of extreme unction and priestly confessionals. It contains enough material, this one chapter, I think, for an entire sermon series, but despite its breadth and richness, there is, I think, a common thread which goes throughout and which, I believe, ties in logically with the rest of the book of James. In the five five chapters of James, we have five major topics, five tests of Christian maturity. Chapter one tells us that we can identify mature Christians by their attitude to suffering, and chapter two by their obedience to God's word. Chapter three identified controlled speech as a hallmark of the Christian, the mature Christian, and chapter four focused on a mature attitude to God's will an attitude that results in peaceful relations with God, um, with others, and even within ourselves. This fifth and final chapter builds on all that's gone before, and here it spotlights the mature Christian response to trouble, the mature Christian response to trouble, trouble of various kinds. And that response is patience and and prayerfulness, patience and prayerfulness. The first half of our chapter focuses on patience, the second half on prayer, and our sermon follows that division, patience and prayer. There are close links between the two, and the foundation of both is the Christian hope of Christ's return. Christ's return will bring about a harvest in due season. It's an agricultural image which we find in both halves of the chapter, that of the harvest. Now, it's been said that the preacher A preacher usually takes a text and preaches from it, very far from it. Well, I'll try not to do that, but in order to help me, I'd appreciate it if you would actually have open in front of you, if possible, the passage, page 1216, if you're within reach of a Bible, 1216. So, the mature Christian response to trouble is firstly, patient perseverance. James certainly knows how to grab the attention. No beating around the bush. He is straight in with his uncompromising denunciation. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Not a very welcome guest at a North Oxford cocktail party with that sort of comment. In chapter 2, James had identified the rich to be people who were exploiting the brothers. You can look back at some point people who were slandering the name of Jesus. 
And James is very much in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets who addressed stern denunciations to absent audiences. It seems likely that there was a group of wealthy landowners who were exploiting poor members of the church in various ways. And whilst there is nothing wrong with having resources and power per se, James highlights ways in which they can be misused and were being misused. He condemns four particular sins in our passage. They are hoarding, defrauding, luxury, and treachery. And so before moving on to consider the right response to these troubles, we'll just spend a few moments looking at each of those four. Verses 2 and 3 speak of the hard-hearted injustice of hoarding, hoarding whilst at the same time owing to others. It's not wrong to make prudent provision for the future, but as with Jesus' parable of the farmer building the bigger and bigger barns, there is a futility in putting one's faith in and so storing up treasures on earth. This futility is vividly expressed in the references in our passage to rot, moths, and corrosion. Verse 4 records the defrauding of those who were owed money, workers living near the breadline and so in desperate need of their daily wage. We must heed that warning when we decide whether we are to put our resources and spending power to support ethical businesses or enjoy cheaper products associated with work exploitation. Verse 5 draws attention to a difficult issue of enjoying what God has provided, which is right to do. We're told to do so in 1 Timothy 6 but at the same time avoiding the extravagant and wasteful indulgence in luxury. The sin of treachery is highlighted in verse 6 as another example of the corrupting power of money. Money and power have long gone hand in hand. I don't know if you're familiar with the cartoon uh, from the Wizard of Id series that goes a bit like this. Well, there's a king addressing his subjects all sort of arrayed below him. He's preaching, well, um, not preaching exactly, but addressing them from a tower. Remember the golden rule, he says. What's that? One of his subjects replies. Well, the one who has the gold makes the rules. Well, whilst we might not be guilty of the extreme sin of murder, let us be careful how we use the power that we have. And let's face it, we all have power of different types. Let us be careful that we use it honestly and for the good of those with less than us. It should be noted that these particular sins of the rich, the hoarding, the defrauding, the luxury, and the treachery, are rooted in a fixation on this earthly life, fixed, focused on the here and now. And those resources were being invested in the here and now in order to enjoy the pleasures of this world. The rich didn't know or it seems they didn't know that they were living in the last days of this world. A passing age, and they would soon be, as James puts it in verse 5, in the day of slaughter. Their focus on the present informed their morality and controlled their behavior. In contrast, in verses 7 to 12, James moves on to consider the mature Christian response of the victims of oppression and exploitation that response should be one of patient perseverance. And the foundation of that response is the future hope of the Lord's return. So quite a different perspective. That future hope, which is introduced in verses 7 and 8. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. 
The doctrine of the return of Christ is central to the New Testament, and it's fundamental to our understanding of the Christian life and its motivation. Apparently, I haven't counted them, but there are, there are some 300 references in the New Testament to Christ's return. And that equates to roughly one every 13 verses. The return of Christ is central. And the return of Christ is pictured as a turning of the seasons. We live in the season between Christ's first and his second comings. That season which is often austere and apparently bereft of significant fruit. A wintry season. But that eschatological expectation is that of a new season, a new age that brings with it a harvest of abundant fruitfulness and joy. Many of us are familiar with the Narnia series. And C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uses this seasonal image. In that book, the white witch holds Narnia in the grip of a hundred years of winter. This grip, this wintry season, is only broken when Aslan arrives, bringing spring in his wake. The Narnians that have kept the faith during that long winter, that long hostile season, those who have the patience of the poor, they are the ones who are ultimately able to enter into and fully enjoy that new season, that spring that arrives with Aslan, the new age that dawns. And in the central verses of our passage of chapter 5, James gives three examples of the patient perseverance that is needed during that difficult season. In agricultural mode, he speaks of the farmer. Then he considers the Old, Test Old Testament heroes of patient perseverance, the prophets and Job. Three examples of patient perseverance. Firstly, then, the farmer. Well, it's not much good being a farmer if you're impatient. I'm not a farmer myself, and I realize that there are farmers amongst us today, but I gather that no crop appears overnight, apart from perhaps weeds, which seem to do that on occasion. No farmer also has control over the weather. A farmer has to have patience with those external factors. And the, the farmer must also have patience with the seed and the crop, which takes time to germinate, to grow, and eventually produce fruit. But that patient perseverance pays off. It pays off because the fruit is precious and the harvest is worth waiting for. James, in our passage, pictures, I think, the Christian as a spiritual farmer looking for a spiritual harvest. And as there are agricultural seasons, so there are spiritual seasons. And it's only by endurance that we see the harvest in our lives, the harvest of the mouth-watering fruit of the Spirit. It's said that patience is a bitter plant but it produces a sweet fruit. And there are two particular things that we should note about farmers. Well, the first is that a farmer doesn't stand around doing nothing whilst he waits for the harvest. A farmer is continually active. James isn't telling these suffering believers to put on a white robe, climb a hill, and wait for Christ's return. To keep working whilst we're waiting is an order given by Jesus in many of his parables. Secondly, a farmer doesn't get into fights or disputes with his neighbors. On the contrary, a characteristic of farmers, I gather, is their willingness to help one another. 
And so, as James urges in verse 9, we shouldn't get into fights with our fellow believers, our fellow spiritual farmers. We shouldn't start grumbling and arguing with one another. The prophets referred to in verse 10 are an example of the victory over persecution, that results, the persecution that results from their faithful witness. It's one of the lies of Satan that suffering is always the result of sin or unfaithfulness, but that is a lie. Suffering can be the result of faithfulness. As 2 Timothy 3 tells us, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And enduring the inevitable troubles that result from faithful witness to God and, testimony to, uh, and faithfulness to his gospel, that endurance backs up that testimony. The impact of a faithful, godly life is powerful. And we need to remember that as we face times of trouble. And let's remember also to pray for our brothers and sisters undergoing trials that they would bear up and that they would have the patient perseverance they need in order to be faithful witnesses to those around them. The third example of patience in times of trouble is Job. Job famously loses his wealth, his health, and his family. That is, his family, except for his wife, who rather unhelpfully tells him to commit suicide. Most of the book of Job is a series of debates between him and his so-called friends, who accuse him of being a sinner and a hypocrite. Job's suffering was extreme, but through it he maintained patient faithfulness to God, even when he couldn't understand the reason for what he was going through. But as Michael reminded us last week, preaching on James 4, God gives us more grace. God gives us more grace. And God sustains Job through that season of suffering, bringing him to the season of joy and abundant fruitfulness, giving him twice as much as he had before. Job's straightforward honesty, even in times of great suffering, epitomizes the quality that James is referring to in verse 12, when he forbids the making of, of, of oaths. When we are going through difficulties, it's easy to say things that we don't really mean, or even to make bargains with God. But we should instead be known for our uncomplicated integrity, even in times of great stress and trouble. James then wants us to encourage us to be patient in times of suffering, times of trouble. Like the farmer, we are working whilst we wait for a spiritual harvest, for fruit that will glorify God. Like the prophets, we look for opportunities to witness, to share the truth of God. And like Job, we wait for the Lord to fulfill his loving purpose, knowing that he will never cause his children to suffer needlessly. We might long for a life without difficulties, but we should remember that mighty oaks grow strong under the pressure and of the force of contrary winds, and diamonds are made under pressure. Patience. But the final section of James and of this sermon is concerned with what could be seen as the active component of patient perseverance. In other words, persistent prayerfulness. We should pray in all situations, whether good or bad, and that's stated up front in verse 13. But in keeping with that mature Christian, the theme of mature Christian response to troubles, the focus of, on praying is then in relation to sickness and sin. Time for a swig of water. 
as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, this is a controversial passage. And this is in part because the key Greek terms and concepts are ambiguous and so open to a degree of interpretation. Personally, I think that James is intentionally using a number of concepts that act, act as sort of double entendres. Uh, speaking of double entendres, I rather like this one. What, this is the question, what are the definitions of ignorance and apathy? Well, the answer, of course, is I don't know and I don't care. But despite the uh, degree of uncertainty about parts of this passage, there are some things that we do know. And since they all relate to matters of fundamental importance, we certainly should care to discover them. So as we come to this final section of James's impressive letter, and challenging letter, I must add, let's consider very briefly three areas, the problem, the practice, and the promise. Firstly, the problem. Well, we're introduced to a situation where someone is, according to verse 14, sick. The word used here is, is asthenio, which literally means weak. It's the usual word in the New Testament for physical sickness, but it's also used on occasion to denote moral incapacity and even sin. There is at least sometimes a relationship between sickness and sin, and this relationship is suggested in the following verses, verses 15 and 16. Now, this is a difficult area. It's a very difficult area to consider briefly, but suffice to say, it is the biblical view that sickness is sometimes caused by sin. I'll say that again. Sickness is sometimes caused by sin. Jesus himself suggested as much when he healed the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, and he warned the paralytic, having healed him, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. But it's also true that there is no simple relationship, no simple correlation between sickness and sin. Much sickness is not caused by sin, or at least not of the sin of the individual affected. Again, Jesus himself makes this point when his disciples asked, the, asked of the man born blind, if you remember in John 9, whether it was he or his parents who had sinned. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. In modern medicine, it's recognized that bad lifestyle choices can lead to ill health. And it's obvious that illness and disability can be inflicted on others by, for example, negligence or lack of concern. And sickness is also a powerful metaphor for sin. And Jesus himself used the healing of sickness to dramatically demonstrate the authority that he had to bring spiritual healing. Spiritual healing brought about by the forgiveness of sins. For example, in healing and forgiving the paralytic who was lowered down from the roof, do you remember what he said? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then tells them to get up and walk. And so this brings us to consider the practice. What is to be done in response to the problem? Well, there are two situations, two practices discussed in this passage. The summoning by a person who is sick of the elders of the church, who then anoint them with oil and pray. And also the mutual confession of sin and praying for one another. Anointing with oil was a, both a medicinal activity 
and also a symbol of God's activity and grace. But it was not the anointing with oil that made the difference. What is efficacious, according to verse 15, is what the NIV translates as the prayer offered in faith, or more literally, the prayer of faith. Elijah is given as an example of what it means to pray the prayer of faith. In other words, what it means, I would suggest, to ask God to give us according to his will. Elijah's prayer was granted to him, not because he was special. In fact, we're told that he was a man just like us. Elijah's prayer was granted to him because he prayed in line with God's will, with what God had said he was going to do. Now, if you need convincing of this, I'd suggest at some point you look at 1 Kings 18, which um, in the, at the end of the chapter is the prayer that, um, that James is referring to. But right at the beginning of that chapter, the Lord tells Elijah what he is going to do. So Elijah didn't pray presumptuously. He prayed humbly and from what he knew of God's will. And that prayer of faith is that which is powerful and effective. In fact, it's quite unstoppable because it's what God wills to do. So the prayer of faith is to pray to God, thy will be done. And it has to be said that it's not always God's will to heal in this life. In fact, we will all face death. It's not always God's will to remove suffering. Many of us here have asked God to heal or to relieve suffering. But God hasn't. Paul asked for the thorn, of, thorn in his flesh to be removed, but it wasn't. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane for the cup to be taken from him, but only if it was God's will, but it wasn't. Prayer, said Robert Law, is not getting man's will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. Prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, it's getting God's will done in earth. Thy will be done. And that is what is ultimately best. Many Christians can testify alongside Jean Ingelow that I have lived to thank God that not all my prayers have been answered. Instead, thy will be done. So we should only expect to God to do what he has promised to do. This is what it means to pray in faith. Any other prayer is wishful thinking at best or presumption at worst. So what has God promised? What has God promised? And that brings us to our final area. According to the NIV, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And that word, well, that original Greek word, is exactly the same word that's used in verse 20, which speaks of salvation. The Greek word is sozo. We have an English word, salve, which reflects that ambiguity between healing and salvation. The promise is that both the prayer of faith of the elders and the act of turning of a sinner from the error of his ways leads to the individual being saved or rescued, in some cases, I believe, from physical illness and physical death, that type of salvation, and in other cases, from spiritual illness and the judgment of spiritual death 
God promises that salvation. And another ambiguity is the use in the same verse, verse 15, of raise up. Raising up, which again can have this double sense of raising up as from a sickbed or raising up from death as in resurrection. He will be raised up. The sure promise that we have, that which we can rely on, and that is God's will, the sure promise we have is that those who put their faith in Jesus, those who persevere in their troubles, and those who turn to God in faithful prayer will experience salvation. They will experience the ultimate spiritual healing and resurrection from the dead that's modeled by the physical healing that God sometimes brings about. The rising up from the sickbed prefigures that great rising up, the harvest of the righteous that will occur on the last day when the Lord returns. And it's with patience and prayer that we need to face our troubles and look forward to that promised season of unalloyed joy and abundant fruitfulness. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Amen.